Good afternoon. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I want to welcome you here to uh, our second banner lecture for 2010 here in the Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose uh, support helps make these lectures possible. So now, if you'll silence your cell phones, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Although Dolly Madison was born in North Carolina, she lived here much of her life and considered herself a Virginian. She even, well, I won't say lied, but perhaps misled her very first biographer um, to write that she was a native Virginian. Dolly is rightly remembered as one of the most successful first ladies. After her husband's death, she also took a leading role in the publication of his notes on the Constitutional Convention, which is one of the most important primary sources we have on that event. Her role in that publication is the subject of a special Madison-themed issue of our journal, the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, which will be mailed to VHS members next month. And Dolly's life at Montpelier is an important part of the interpretation being made of that house by our co-sponsor for today's event. The Montpelier Foundation is the private nonprofit organization that is the steward of Montpelier, James Madison's lifelong home located in Orange County. Montpelier stands as the nation's monument to James and Dolly Madison and is a place where visitors can rediscover James Madison's legacy as father of the Constitution and architect of the Bill of Rights, as well as Dolly Madison's many contributions to the American nation. The architectural restoration of the Montpelier Mansion was completed in 2008, and the next major task is to refurnish the house. It's one of the most dynamic restorations happening in the United States today, and I urge you to take a trip there if you have not already been. We appreciate the Montpelier Foundation being a part of this event, and I would like to thank Mike Quinn. Is Mike here? I haven't seen him. There he is. He's waving his hand in the middle. Thank Mike Quinn, president of the Montpelier Foundation, for being with us today. And today we're delighted to present Muffy Meyer. Muffy is here some, somewhere, I hope. I met her and <laughs> lost track of her very quickly. There she is, okay. Uh, Muffy is the producer of a new documentary on the First Lady called Dolly Madison, America's First Lady. Part of the documentary was indeed filmed on location at Montpelier. Ms. Meyer will give us a behind-the-scenes look at the production of the film, and she'll give us a sneak preview of segments from the documentary, which will premiere next month on PBS. So please join me in welcoming Muffy Meyer, who will talk to us about Dolly Madison, America's First Lady. I think I'm responsible for the platform so that I can be seen. So I'm really pleased to be here, and um, because it's not in my notes, and I keep trying to remember, the show will air on PBS Monday evening, March 1st, the beginning of Women's History Month. So um, I want to stress that what you're seeing is only a tiny bit of the film, and I hope if you like what you've seen, you'll watch the show and tell your friends. Um, I have a few thank yous, hearty thank yous to make um, to our hosts, the Virginia Historical Society and James Madison's Montpelier. And uh, I wanted also to thank our corporate sponsors, Lando Lakes, our executive producer, Catherine Allen and Twin Cities Public Television, the folks at American Experience, and especially the National Endowment for the Humanities, who was with us and funding us from the, when we were just a twinkle in my eye. Um, I also want to express uh, a lot of gratitude to the Virginia Film Commission, uh, to the people at the Governor's Mansion in Richmond, and to Montpelier, who not only allowed us to film on their property, which is actually a really brave act, and, um, and who also gave us their time, immense knowledge, and their guidance. Um, we enter this process as not as historians, but as filmmakers, and are charged with spending about a year learning as much about our subject as we possibly can. And so all of the experts who, who help us, who say, don't film that light, it's not the right period, and all of that is hugely helpful. So, Dolly Madison. Um, 
She presented a challenge. When we decided with our executive producer, Catherine Allen, to make a film about Dolly Madison, I knew about as much about Dolly as the average American, which I've asked all sorts of people, well-educated uh, peers to you know, taxi drivers in New York, to people I meet at cocktail parties, what they know about Dolly. And most people sort of say uh, hostess, uh, cakes, ice cream, and so on. <laughs> Um, so the, the, the first thing one is faced with is what's the story? Um, you know, how are we going to get people to watch a film about Dolly Madison instead of American Idol or Law and Order? Um, in the beginning, um, we were concerned because uh, compared to some of the other uh, even historical subjects that we've tackled, like Benjamin Franklin, who learned, you know, who tamed lightning and, and brought France into the uh, American Revolution and signed the Constitution, or Alexander Hamilton, who um, set up the American financial system and died in a duel. Um, those are, you know, instantly exciting stories. So our challenge was to produce a 90-minute program about a nice lady who served ice cream. <laughs> Well, as we were to discover, and uh, what we hope many Americans will also discover, is that the story of Dolly's life is very important in, to the history of our country. In fact, she's probably the most important American woman of the 19th century, and in fact, it's a great story. It's a great plot. And what's most surprising is that she was important to our history precisely because she was a nice woman who served ice cream at parties. So if I've piqued your interest a little bit, let's look at a clip from the program. This is sort of the tease. This is the first thing people will see. Whoops. Um, I think I need technical help. Hmm. Here comes someone. Thank you. I clearly did something wrong. Sorry. It's all right. Everyone ready for the snow tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> July 1849, the entire United States government shut down for a funeral. It was said to be the largest Washington, D.C. had ever seen. President Zachary Taylor, his entire cabinet, members of the diplomatic corps, the Senate and House of Representatives, and thousands of ordinary citizens were honoring a person who had held no government office, had written no influential laws, nor won any military battles. Dolly Madison came to be known as this country's first First Lady. More than anyone else, she had created that unofficial office and in the process, changed the face of the presidency. They called her Queen Dolly because she reigned supreme over Washington. She was a heroine at the center of heroic events. But there's the public Dolly Madison, and then there's this extraordinarily difficult, even tragic, private life that she's living out. Family meant everything to her, but her only child nearly ruined her. She helped establish Washington, D.C., only to see it almost destroyed by an invading army. People described her as sunny and charming, but at her core was a will of iron. There is a secret in life, better than anything a fortune teller can reveal. We all have a great hand in the forming of our own destiny. One of the 
tricks in, in making historical films, one of the things that's very important is to try and get our audience to look at the past not backwards. In other words, we know how everything turned out, but um, what one wants to do is get people to experience history as while living it, essentially, as the people did who were living it. Um, and the people who were living it obviously didn't know how things were going to turn out. And so what we try and do is use the letters and diaries and journals of the time to give a sense of how life felt like for the people at, the, at that time. Uh, in the second clip, um, it's from Dolly's early life, and um, the first person who speaks is her, Dolly's grandniece, um, who wrote a biography of Dolly, which was based on an unpublished biography that her mother wrote. Um, and both of them knew Dolly. So here is a second piece. Let's see. Ah! Sorry. In July 1849, the entire United States government shut down for a few. if I can get it. Yeah. Dolly was called to her father's bedside and told that he wished her to become the wife of John Todd, a young man of whom he had the highest opinion. Mr. Todd was a promising young lawyer of means, a man who had shown him great kindness in his troubles. I didn't wish to marry. It was a hard struggle. But I couldn't think of disobeying my father's wishes. I gave up my girlhood and married Mr. Todd in 1790. Dolly Todd soon had two young sons. Now 25, she seemed on course to finally having a secure, if unremarkable, life. Then, in August 1793, Philadelphia was racked with an epidemic of yellow fever. Within a few days, Dolly's father-in-law and mother-in-law both died. Soon afterwards, her husband and younger son were stricken. They died on the same day. I too took the fever and was very ill. My baby, just an infant, was taken from me. Dolly and her older son, Payne, survived. She had to fight for her husband's property, and even for the custody of her son, who was considered part of her husband's estate. It's important to remember that women had no political rights or legal rights. Married women could not own property. They were the property of their husbands. So she really did have to think long and hard about remarrying. But Dolly also understood that having a husband in her life would be useful for her son. She was still young. It's only natural that she should have many admirers. <laughs> Gentlemen would station themselves outside of her house just to watch her pass, so much so that a Quaker friend out walking with her chided her, saying, Really, Dolly, thou must hide thy face. There are so many men staring at thee. <laughs> Mrs. Todd would laugh heartily and obediently put up both hands to her face. It was widely said around Philadelphia that she couldn't come out of the house without about 10 people, men, all standing at the head of the street, waving to her. <laughs> Philadelphia was the temporary capital of the country, and James Madison was a representative at Congress Hall, just around the corner from Dolly's house. The 43-year-old bachelor took notice of the young widow, out walking with her cousin. Madison was known as a monumental intellect, 
He was a seminal figure in the establishment of the United States Constitution and a champion of the Bill of Rights. One of the country's most prominent political leaders, he was also shy, sickly, and short. He's an anchovy. He looks like a country schoolmaster, mourning over one of his pupils he's just whipped to death. He was the opposite of charismatic, but in small groups he was known to be extremely charming and very funny and known for his dirty jokes. So I don't think he was quite as sober sides as we may ordinarily imagine him to be. He had never had enormous luck with the ladies. And Dolly is a babe. And that James ever got up the nerve to court her is one of history's mysteries. Madison asked a common acquaintance, Aaron Burr, to arrange an introduction. Senator Aaron Burr says that the great little Madison has asked to be brought to see me this evening. Mr. Madison was 17 years her senior and was thought to be a lifelong bachelor, but it only took one meeting for her to conquer this reclusive bookworm. Cousin, he told me that he thinks about you so much in the day that he's lost his tongue. At night, he dreams of you and starts in his sleep, calling on you to relieve his flame, for he burns to such an excess as to be almost consumed. With sparkling eyes, he's given me full permission to tell you all this. James Madison was determined to have her. Shy he may have been, short he may have been, determined he was. Madison was a very, very famous man, and people pointed him out as he walked the streets of Philadelphia. Dolly was ambitious in her own way, too, and she was delighted to get this uh, kind of attention. She was instantly on the inside of the top tier of the political world, and that, that meant a lot to her. Rumors about us created quite a sensation in Philadelphia. It even reached the presidential mansion, and I was summoned to tea with Mrs. Washington. Dolly, she said to me, is it true that you are engaged to James Madison? Well, I was taken aback, and I stammered, no, I think not. If this is so, she said, don't be afraid to confess it. Be proud. He will make thee a good husband. All the better that he is an older man. Within four months of their first meeting, Dolly Payne Todd and James Madison were married at her sister's home in Virginia. On her wedding day, she wrote a letter to a friend. I've stolen away from the family to communicate with you, to tell you, in short, that I have given my hand to the man who, of all others, I most admire. In this marriage, I look forward to a soothing future, and my little pain will have a generous and tender protector. Best love to you and yours, Dolly Payne Todd. Now, Mrs. Madison. Alas. When the wedding was over, she went back and she signed it, Dolly Madison, alas. Which has puzzled a great many people for a long time. She married him in 1794. She may not have learned to love him until 1795, 1796, 1797. Who knows? She might have loved him when she married him. But she clearly developed with him a wonderful partnership and a real love. It's a classic case of opposites attracting. She had the charisma that completed Madison in a way that um, probably no one else could have with enormous consequences for this country. When Dolly married James Madison, she was read out of Quaker meeting because she had married out of the sect. But I think she was probably pretty ready to get out of it anyway. The transformation after she marries Madison is radical. Suddenly, for the first time, you start seeing images of uh, her shoulders and her neck and her bosom. She is not in any way shy from uh, wearing the most fashionable fashions of that 
Philadelphia era and showing her body off a little bit. There were a lot of people who commented on the fact that uh, Dolly Madison kind of took those fashions as far as they could go, sort of respectably. Friend Dolly, I send you this gift of some handkerchiefs to shade your lovely bosom from the admiration and gaze of the vulgar. In 1797, with his Republican Party out of power, Madison retired from the House of Representatives. Dolly and James and her five-year-old son, Payne, moved to Madison's 5,000-acre Virginia plantation, called Montpelier. When Dolly married James in 1794, it was not a foregone conclusion that she would be a politician's wife. James Madison, of course, had been a very prominent politician, but it wasn't at all clear that he would continue in politics. James and Dolly went to Montpelier for a retirement. This, of course, would prove to be a false retirement. As John Adams said, political plants seem to grow best in the shade. So, um, you saw a lot of Richmond, actually, in some of that footage. Um, the, all the street scenes were filmed just outside of Rich Richmond on the set of uh, where the John Adams uh, series, HBO series, uh, filmed. So all the Philadelphia and uh, street scenes were there, were filmed there. And, of course, Montpelier. Um, the, um, yeah, we f I would say we filmed two-thirds of the movie in Virginia. Um, and the only other little note is when you saw that cart go by during the yellow fever scene, um, the dead hand hanging out was the person who wrote this, the Dolly Madison program. He <laughs> <laughs> um, wanted to be in it. <laughs> um, now, the next clip I'm going to show... Um, Put yourself back into the time of uh, when James Madison was just elected president. Um, Washington was still being built and was largely a muddy swamp. As someone said, it was houses with no streets and streets with no houses was a, a traveler at the time. Um, it was the capital city of a republic, uh, the only republic of, in the world at the time, actually the only republic, virtually the only republic that had, that had existed in the last, uh, you know, close to 2,000 years. And um, all the other countries uh, had courts and kings and emperors and czars. On the one hand, much of the country was even ambivalent about even having a capital city. Um, they, were, they were very worried about uh, recreating what they saw as the corrupt European court system and were very afraid that that corruption would almost instantly breed if they had a capital city. And that's why they moved it so far away from New York, Philadelphia, et cetera. Um, and they were terrified. Um, they were very, very suspicious of anything that smacked of royalist trappings. On the other hand, there were no models for how a president should act. Uh, he wasn't a king, but he had to have a kind of modicum of dignity and command you know, the respect fitting a president, fitting a leader of a, albeit new country. So the question was, what should the capital of a republic look like if not a European court? What should the president's house look like if it wasn't a palace? Um, and the things like palaces and thrones and crowns, which are symbols of a ru ruler's legitimacy and power, um, how should a republic express its power and legitimacy? All of these things still had to be worked out, and worked out in a time of extraordinary political divisiveness. Makes today look gentle. Um, uh, there were um, two proto-political parties, the Federalists and the Republicans, and they hated one another and basically couldn't agree on anything. And that is the setup to this next clip. Okay. Maybe by the third one I'll have figured this out. Yes. 
The political atmosphere in Washington was poisonous. In 1809, with the country barely 20 years old, members of Congress had not yet figured out how to make the government function. Foreign relations, taxation, states' rights, all were matters of bitter dispute. Madison had been a key figure in creating the blueprint for the American system of government. As president, he passionately wanted to make it work. There's a great deal of anxiety in this period about the Republican experiment, whether it's going to fall apart or not. This was a terribly violent era in the early Republic. This is the era where men fought and murdered each other over ideologies. They shot each other, they beat each other with canes, and not on the streets or in the boarding houses, but on the floors of Congress. Duels happened every day. There's a dueling ground right here in Bladensburg where members of Congress would call each other out. These were men who were at each other's throats literally. Everything in Washington seemed to exacerbate political divisions. Jefferson had had dinners in which he deliberately kept the two parties apart inviting Republicans one night and Federalists the next. Even the living arrangements intensified the partisanship, with Federalists staying in one boarding house and Republicans in another. For politics to happen, you need the social sphere. That's the place where people can work out things, they can compromise, they can talk, they can make deals. In Washington City, there was no place for the unofficial sphere. There are no public spaces for interactions. There aren't hotel lobbies. There aren't bars. I mean, there are not places where people could come together socially as opposed to in an argument over politics. Dolly realized that the executive mansion could be used for this political purpose. During previous administrations, the building was simply the president's private residence. She would transform it into a place where politicians could come together informally, a politically neutral space with music, food, and civility. She began by decorating and furnishing its austere public rooms. To execute the work, Dolly chose the architect of the U.S. Capitol building, Benjamin Henry Latrobe. She knew her choice of decoration would be seen as a political statement. The president's house had to be elegant enough to indicate the power of the office, but it also had to reassure the most pure-minded of Democrats that this was an executive mansion fit for a republic. One of the great gifts that Dolly brought to James Madison was this understanding, unconscious, intuitive, of the importance of symbols, and she understood she was creating a symbol for America. Dolly required that the furnishings be American-made. The chairs and sofas incorporated Grecian and Roman motifs. The meaning was clear. Americans were the heirs of democracy's creators. Dolly insisted that Gilbert Stewart's portrait of the country's founder have a prominent place in the public rooms. But Benjamin Latrobe had a definite idea where it should go. I am sorry to have counteracted any wish of yours as to General Washington's picture. The dining room is properly the picture room, and I therefore intended him to occupy either the place at the west end of the room, between the windows, or at the east end. Dolly had her own sense of style, and chose brightly colored furnishings which did not sit well with her more conservative architect. The curtains. Oh, the terrible velvet curtains. They will blind everyone with their brilliance. The effect will ruin me. Thomas Jefferson's idea of decorating White House was to bring his own furniture from Monticello. I'm sure it's elegant, I'm sure it's beautiful, but it didn't provide for future generations. When the Madisons entered the White House, they say, we're building a permanent structure for the presidency. We're building for the future. This is firm, this is solid, this is for America. So uh, you saw the courthouse in Richmond a lot in that, that clip. 
And um, the furniture that they were moving around is actually an exact repro reproduction of the uh, Latrobe furniture that Latrobe and Dolly designed for the White House. It was um, made a number of years ago by the Baltimore Museum of Art from his original drawings. And they were kind enough to lend it to us, and we put it into the governor's mansion, which represented the White House in our film, uh, the Virginia governor's mansion. <laughs> Um, so, um, in the next clip, uh, well, let me introduce it by saying um, what Dolly did, and this was her genius, was, and she figured this out from scratch, is she created a style that was appropriate to this new form of government, a republic. Um, she intuitively understood the importance of symbols, national symbols, and how valuable they are in holding a country together at a time when everything was uh, vituperous and seemed to be falling apart. Um, and in this next clip, uh, Madison has just been inaugurated as the fourth president of the United States. And it's the evening of the first inaugural ball, or it's actually the late afternoon. It starts in the late afternoon of the first inaugural ball ever to be held in Washington. And one thing to keep in mind when viewing the clip is that balls staged by heads of state in European courts, staged by kings and emperors and so on, um, would at that time only be open to select you know, courtiers and uh, aristocrats and high government officials. Um, so this is Dolly's um, opening gambit. Uh, and her, the first inaugural ball in Washington. OK, let's see if I've got it. There we go. My beloved Phoebe. Oh, you must pardon the appearance of neglect with regards to your charming letter. When tranquility once again resumes its reign in my life, I promise to write volumes. I'm glad you take no more snuff, but I must. Oh, adieu, sweet one. The Madison presidency began with an inaugural ball, the first ever held in Washington. From the start, Dolly resolved to establish a new style for the new administration. By the time James Madison becomes president, you have had this federalist government with its royal protocols, and then this democratic radical republicanism on the part of Jefferson. And what the Madisons do is to say, we don't want either. This is a new administration. It's a new day in Washington. And because everything has to be created, there are opportunities there. You start with nothing except your imagination. She dressed in a beautiful fine fabric, which is in the Quaker tradition, a beautiful velvet, but it was of a simple color, a buff color that they call, so kind of off-white. And she wore the most American of jewelry, pearls. Pearls were a major statement a British aristocrat, male or female, encrusted himself in diamonds. And Dolly Madison wore pearls rather than diamonds. Dolly Madison, and I think she did this very consciously, kind of cooked up a formula that ultimately became the formula for a genuinely successful first lady in her time, and I think even to this day. And that is this very fine balance between, if you will, queen and commoner. This inaugural ball would be very different from the formal occasions of previous administrations. Dolly wanted to include a true cross-section of her countrymen. And it was said that although 400 people were invited, in fact, anyone who could afford the $4 price of a ticket could attend. For some gentlemen, this was a bit of a shock to uh, be sipping cider next to a humble farmer or whomever. But for Dolly, it was important to show that 
all were welcome, that this was a country where everyone was equal. And Dolly had a ball. And I think everyone who went there probably had a ball, except for James Madison, who told Margaret Bayard Smith he'd rather be at home. So, um, obviously I'm skipping around a lot, and I should also say that um, the, the, the scholars that you're seeing are, uh, um, Carl Anthony is the younger fellow who is, uh, has written a number of books on first ladies, um, Holly Shulman, who's wearing red, although I think two of them are wearing red, um, is at the University of Virginia and curator of the Dolly Madison papers. And Catherine Algor has written one of the few, one of the two or three best books about Dolly Madison. Um, so that's who they are, and we just, I don't have a print yet with the subtitles on them. Um, so, um, What's really interesting is that everybody, one of the things that helped us a lot is that, um, that a lot of Dolly's contemporaries, particularly the women, described her clothes. They were, Dolly was a little bit avant-garde in her clothes and uh, consequently it, uh, a lot of people wrote back and forth letters about what Dolly wore. So we were able to recreate the designs uh, of those costumes you know, for the film. Um, although we agonized a lot about what color buff actually was. <laughs> um, in this last clip, um, I wanted to show you Dolly being a true heroine during the War of 1812. This is probably the other most famous story about Dolly when she saved the portrait of George Washington. Um, and in doing so, in a way, and I think she did this quite consciously, she was literally risking her life to save an importance, an, a symbol that she knew was an important symbol. So, without, okay, getting the hang of this. Oh wait, sorry, I did the wrong one. It was this miserable little city, and now it was a burned, out, miserable little city. And Let me go back. She remained in the White House, alone with a few slaves. Since sunrise, I've been turning my spyglass in every direction, watching in an agony of fear that my dear husband has been taken prisoner. With Dolly was a 15-year-old slave named Paul Jennings, Many years later, he would write a memoir of his life with the Madisons. Mrs. Madison ordered dinner for when the president's party was supposed to return. I brought up the ale, sat in wine, and placed them in the coolers. Then I set the table. Suddenly, they heard the sound of an approaching horseman. James Smith came galloping up to the house, waving his hat, crying out, Clear out! Clear out! The army was in full retreat. People running in every direction. The British were expected in a few minutes. The American soldiers had been defeated at Bladensburg and were running for their lives. Washington was now completely undefended. Dolly directed Paul Jennings and the other slaves to save the public documents, along with the presidential silver and the red velvet curtains. She knows an enemy army is about to capture the city, and she is now focused on saving Gilbert Stewart's portrait of George Washington that hung on the west wall of a large dining room in the president's home. She knew that the very first, and indeed the ultimate war trophy that the British army would take away from the White House would be the portrait of Washington. They'd take it with them, and they'd march it through the streets of London as the ultimate trophy of their victory. And so she was going to prevent that from happening at almost any cost. I insisted on waiting until the large picture of General Washington was unscrewed from the wall. But it took too long. So I ordered the frame to be broken and the canvas rolled up. It is done. And now I must leave this house. Where I shall be tomorrow. I cannot tell. 
only when she was absolutely certain that this painting had been carried away to safety in a wagon did she decide to leave in her carriage. This is part of what makes her so interesting. She has in some way what we like to think of at least as a very modern, um, almost sixth sense about the psychological value of national symbols. Stop and think, in 1814, this country didn't have a lot of history. It didn't have a lot of unifying symbols. It had George Washington, and even more, it had the mythology of George Washington. Rescuing that portrait was an act of patriotism and defiance, which, if she had done nothing else, would have immortalized Dolly Madison. The advancing British troops burned the Capitol building and then moved on to the executive mansion. There, they discovered the table handsomely laid out for Madison's guests. The soldiers toasted Dolly, devoured her dinner, and then they got to work. There was no shortage of kindling. Writing tables, ornamented beds, gilded sofas, and Latrobe's hand-painted chairs with red velvet cushions. I heard a tremendous explosion. Rushing out, I saw that the public buildings, the navy yard, the rope walks were all on fire. A panic filled the defenseless city as soon as the populace saw the flames rise from the presidential abode. It was rumored that the whole city was to be destroyed by fire or sword. Suddenly, a huge storm struck the city. The two-hour-long deluge extinguished the flames. My great-aunt returned to find her home in ruins, smoke still rising from the heaps of blackened timbers. The streets were deserted. With a sickened heart, she drove to my mother's house to await the return of her husband. Such destruction, such confusion. I, I can't tell you what I feel. I wish we could sink our enemies to a bottomless pit. Um, just going to check if we have time for one more clip. I brought along, we made a little um, behind the scenes uh, little three-minute thing about uh, uh, the costume design, how the costumes were designed, and I thought I'd show it to you. And I think we have time, so. I'm Candace Donnelly, and I'm designing the costumes for a program about Dolly Madison to be shown on PBS. As a costume designer, I do many, many a variety of different things. Sometimes it's fantasy. I mean, I've, I've worked for Disney. So it just it kind of runs the gamut. It's, it's part historian, part designer, and then also part trying to look into the character, figuring out what the clothes are saying about that character. This project covers a lot of different periods. The clothes change from when we first see Dolly, when she's a Quaker, and it's 1787, until when we last see her, which is uh, 1830 or something like that. So there's a big variance in style. I use a lot of different books. I like museums. I put together a book of various prints or paintings, drawings, real clothes, to help me understand how the clothes are made and what they're made of. In these drawings, you can kind of clearly see how it's made. And then the next step is to compile fabrics. In, in the case of her white dress, we got a lot of different white sheer white cottons, white lawn, batiste, things that 
the dresses would have been made of. And then the next step is to really start sketching it. When I'm drawing it, I don't copy the design necessarily, but I want to stay as close as I can to the silhouette and not give in to the tendency that people have uh, to adapt it to a modern eye. And it becomes like generic that way, I think. Whoa! What an amazing color! Yeah, isn't that amazing the way it shines? Green. Green and red. You don't, this is supposed to be a little shorter. Yeah, that helps, definitely. You know, in the process of doing this, the people who are actually making the clothes are very, very important. You know, their expertise is huge. Like a third gathered thing. What ultimately matters is the actual garment and um, it, how well that turns out. I'll often show them the fabric and say, is this the best thing for this type of dress? We'll talk about it, and then they'll give me options uh, of what it should be, and then they'll take it and they actually drape it on a form in muslin to the size of the actress. And they'll sew that up, and they'll try on the muslin uh, form on the actress. And then what I did here was I put a little, there's a little snap on it, kind of a little elastic in there, so it's okay. tight. You do a lot of the design work in the muslin, actually, because proportionately you discover how it will look on the actress. You know, how tight it is, where the waistline falls, how much fullness the actress can carry off, things like that, that you really can't tell in a sketch. They had a knife pleated sample that was made out of paper and then they put it on here and then we moved it around on the bottom of the dress, we moved it around a little bit. You have to figure out the placement because when they go to cut the real fabric, if you start taking apart the real fabric too much, it'll end up a mess. I mean, you can still adjust it a bit, but it's better to do it ahead of time in the muslin. And I love the way the bricks came out. They look so much better not being paper. Corsets make all the difference in the world in terms of how these clothes look, and you really have to have the right corset. We used a couple of different corsets with Dolly, and um, it started out with the classic 18th century small waist, and then the corset underneath it is reflecting that shape. The focus is the waist. The corset pushes the breasts up, but it somewhat flattens them out. And then gradually, bit by bit, it starts to get higher. This is what they call a round gown. And then in this dress, it was pretty high, but it was still full, and then it's still poofed out in the back. But it's really almost right under the bust. <laughs> but then by the time she gets to what we think of Dolly Madison, it's really high-waisted. It's the Empire style. So it's, it's a very different silhouette. There was a very specific corset that that um, pushed the breasts up with this style. See, you can see that it's it's there's something here, and it's almost like the fabric is attached to it there. So it just it really really pushes everything up. It's a little bit difficult to breathe in because if it's laced the wrong way, it can press your lungs down. Is it too tight? No, it's it's good. It's <laughs> the other thing that you have to think about when you're doing this is you have to think about the background. For instance, when she was in the white dress, I wanted her to stand out in terms of being the only one in a white dress. Or the other thing you have to think about is the chair she's sitting in or what the walls are going to look like. And a lot of times there's no way for you to know except when you get there. So you have to have various accessories that will help you um, pull, either pull her away from the wall or have her not blend into the chair. Dolly really knew how to wear clothes and project what she wanted to project. 
She's definitely communicating through her clothes. She's kind of having a good time with her clothes. I like that. <laughs> so, I'm, that's, that's all the clips I have. I mean, I actually have more, but I think that's all we have time for. Um, and I'd be happy to take questions. Um, were, uh, do you mean actual dolly fabrics or the fabrics we worked with? fabrics you worked with? Some of them were imported, although we bought them in the States, and some of them were, um, were from the United States. Um, what the costume designer did was that she would, she had this, a guy who would shop for her, and he'd go and bring back little squares of stuff, and she'd say, bring me back white, cottony stuff, and he'd come back with maybe 20 samples that she'd select. Or in the case of the buff-colored gowns, you know, there were lots and lots of buff um, she was, she's, she was, um, she cared very much that the fabrics be authentic to the period. She kept saying, if you bring back, for example, a fabric that was partially synthetic, that under the lights it would give a kind of a shine that wasn't properly period. Uh, so um, everything that you see at least could have been um, worn by Dolly. One of the things that struck me in the whole costume thing was that we were researching and making this film uh, during the campaign and the beginning of the Obama administration, et cetera. And um, I was struck very much by, and thinking back to Jackie Kennedy's, uh, how much that range of queenliness to commoner um, existed in all the, has existed in all the first ladies that I know about and probably all the way back, that they all are thinking about the messages that they want to convey with their clothes and their furnishings and so on. And that really did begin with Dolly. Which one? Um, were any of the costumes from the Richmond History or Valentine Museum used? Can I be heard without the mic? Are you? Okay? I think it's better. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll stand. I'll stand here. Um, the uh, no. The a reason is that we would have loved to have used them, of course, but we actually didn't even ask because uh, um, no museum with period costumes would be foolish enough to let uh, them be used by a film. Uh, it's. <laughs> It's just too uh, risky, you know, the wear and tear is too great. So um, probably we couldn't even afford the insurance, we couldn't have afforded the insurance to borrow costumes like that. One more, one more question. There was a woman here. Here you go, ma'am. Yeah. You mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned the title of a book and uh, the author and of Dolly Madison, you thought was one of the best. Would you repeat that, please? Yes, uh, it's Catherine Algor, A-L-L-G-O-R, and the book is called Parlor Politics. Well, she wrote two, one uh, called Dolly Madison and one called Parlor Politics, and both are wonderful and very readable. And, and Holly Shulman's collected, selected letters of Dolly Madison are also um, very readable. Thank you very much, Mom. You're welcome, thank you.